Welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers of the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo. And today we have another spectacular guest. He's a University of Chicago Law School graduate and currently works as the founding partner of Rushing McCarl and as an adjunct professor at Loyola Law School. He's held past positions as the founder of Ward Brewery and as an associate attorney at Houston and Hennigan. Excited to have him on the podcast today, Mr. Ryan McCarl. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? It's great to be here. Thank you. Everything is great. Well, I am very excited for this one. Very excited to have you here, Ryan. Now, before we get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm. I'm. Uh, so, I'm founding partner of Rushy McCarl LLP. We're a business litigation firm uh, based in Los Angeles. Um, and before that, before that, I've I was uh, on the faculty at UCLA Law for two years, studying AI, the use of AI in the legal profession. Uh, and I also taught an advanced legal writing class. Uh, and the materials that I developed for that course, I eventually developed into a book called Elegant Legal Writing, which I uh, just published two weeks ago through the University of California Press. So that's been very exciting. Uh, and then uh, going back deeper into my my history, I was a 10th Circuit clerk for Judge um, David Ebel. And uh, I, went to the, I went to University of Chicago for undergrad and law school. I also did a master's at, at the University of Michigan, taught high school history for a couple of years between undergrad and law school. And um, yeah, and then somewhere in there, I also founded... Uh, founded a language learning startup called Word Brewery, which you mentioned a few minutes ago, and that that was on for about th- uh, about three or four years. We had uh, I had that running. Well, we will get to everything that you just said soon enough, but we have to go back all the way to the wonderful year of two thousand eight. I was five years old, and you're also the I wow. believe the fourth person to have a book published on the Lawyers in the Making podcast. You're number four. Congratulations. Great. Um, but go back University of Chicago. You majored in political science. You were on the cross country team. I saw that you broke a school record as well. So congratulations for that. I know that's a very long time ago, but it's an impressive achievement. Uh, so thank you. (laughs) No no problem. No problem. So you graduated in 2008. You end up going to the university. You started off at the University of North Carolina School of Law, but you took three years between graduating from college and then going to law school. So what went into your decision deciding to go to law school? Why'd you do it? So I, I was drawn to the law um, from, you know, from fairly early on, but I didn't know any lawyers growing up. There were none in my family uh, and I didn't really know any. Uh, and so I wasn't entirely sure uh, whether it was the right fit uh, for me at first. Uh, it turned out to be kind of a dream vocation for me. Uh, but, um, you know, so at first I wasn't ready to go straight through from undergrad to law school. I really needed to have the experience of having some full-time work experience. And I also wanted to try being a teacher. So I was, uh, became a high school teacher for a couple of years. But what I learned when I was uh, teaching uh, was that uh, the, the, the aspects of, of teaching that involve uh, classroom management, uh, which is a fair bit of it when you're teaching high school, uh, is is different from the aspects that I particularly enjoyed, which was really developing curricula and thinking about how to convey concepts that are difficult to explain and difficult to interest people uh, in. And so that experience ended up helping me become a better lawyer because it helps me 
that experience of trying to earn the attention of ninth graders turned out to be very useful when it came to uh, thinking about trial strategy and how to communicate with jurors. And it turned out to be very useful in giving me essentially the core themes of, of my book, which, uh, which is all about really trying to write a litigation briefs that, are, that judges want to read, enjoy reading, uh, are motivated to read because they find them helpful, uh, and so on. So the idea of, of compressing difficult topics into kind of bite-sized chunks is, is something that I've had, for, had going on as a, as a concern for a very long time. That's also what I was doing with Word Brewery. I was a, a big fan of languages, language learning as a hobby, and I, um, I wanted to develop a way for busy professionals to study languages one sentence at a time and in a way that with the sentences being tailored to their particular uh, current vocabulary uh, level. And so that was, it all kind of is, is related, even though it's, it's been in a lot of different areas. Um, I've always been really at the center of it all. It's always been a love of learning, a love of teaching, and a love of writing and language. So obviously, I, I can tell just from looking behind you, the audience can't see it, but you have literally hundreds of books behind you, which I just love. That is like my dream to have all those books. Right now, I have a little crate. There's probably like 40 books in there. <laughs> Oh, I just, I yeah. love, I love, I, I don't want to say I love the aesthetic, but I love the aesthetic of it. Cause you know, you look like, a, you look like a well-learned man and, and clearly your love of learning is showed through your bookshelf. But mm -hmm. I think it's really important. First point you made was that you didn't know any lawyers before going into law school. And that's, that's something that I've, you know, been through in my own life. Well, I haven't been to law school yet. Uh, and, and you're still uncertain about that sort of thing. Uh, you know, in creating this podcast, I wanted to give people who maybe who like myself don't don't have that kind of, you know, outreach to their family or maybe close friends that are also lawyers to have an opportunity to talk mm -hmm. to professionals and law students and, and learn something that that can be substantial for their you know, law school experience. But I think what you said mm -hmm. about teaching and how you sort of connected it all with different parts of your life that you experience mm -hmm. is just absolutely amazing. The fact that you can sort of connect all the dots, even if they are kind of spread out all the way. Uh, I know in a, in a lot of books and podcasts, I, I've, you know, read about entrepreneurs or listened about entrepreneurs or really just smart people that have ever lived. They always talk about connecting those really wide ranging dots and being able to, you know, carve out something that has something related to each other. So I just love that. Uh, also, two episodes ago, Ted Gomes, he also taught middle school and he talked about the same thing about developing mm -hmm. curricula and teaching people and taking complex topics and, and boiling them mm -hmm. down into sort of those bite size digestible information. Uh, so mm -hmm. I love I loved everything that you said. But let's go to the first year of law school. Mm -hmm. People say it's intense. People say it's traumatic. People love it. People hate it. How was it for you? Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a great undergraduate GPA. I was trying to do everything at once. Uh, I was the captain of the track team. You mentioned cross country. I was a regular columnist for the newspaper. Uh, I combined my BA and MA, did them both in four years at the University of Chicago. I, I audited classes. So, uh, and I read a lot of books and traveled around the city and, you know, and, and had fun. So I did a lot of things uh, and, and getting a perfect grade was not my top priority back then. Um, so I had to I needed a little bit of seasoning after after undergraduate to try to um, you know experience having the the discipline of a of a of a job which is sometimes fun sometimes not fun often the latter um, and 
that that made a big difference for me. And then once the time came, you know, another factor I should note is you, you won't remember since you were five, but in 2008 and 2009, there was the, uh, the big recession. And at that time, if you, on above the law, for example, and other things, I, uh, you know, legal sort of um, publications that I kept an eye on, uh, there was a lot of negativity about becoming a lawyer at that time. And there was, there was a lot, there were lots of stories about people, you know, that went to great schools, got great grades, and then were being laid off before they started. And so I, I, I needed to really take my time uh, to, to, under, to make certain that I was making, uh, making the right decision as best I could. But once I did decide, once I had did something different for three years, uh, and you know, came to the conclusion that uh, well, this is actually what I want. Um, and by the way, I tested that theory by by ordering when I was teaching. I, I read some like a civil procedure case book, and so I read I read some cases about torts, civil procedure, and so on. Just to you know, and I started with civil procedure because I'd heard that was the most it hurt. I heard it was the most boring or mind-numbing of all the 1L topics and it sounds boring. So I went and, you know, I went and ordered a case book and said, if I, if I can tolerate this, then I can go to law school. And I loved it. So, and now I, you know, I ended up, uh, you know, loving procedure um, and, and developing it into a, a skill that I've, I can use as a, as a weapon pretty effectively in litigation. Uh, but uh, that told me the fact that I could read a civil procedure book for fun, you know, told me, okay, I guess I should go to law school. Um, when I when it came to the first year, uh, I was very um, I was very it had really a scarcity kind of mentality or a, uh, it's almost like a, a desperation is the right move right word exactly. But I was trying to find a home for myself in the economy. I had already got had a number of master's degrees. I had a lot of student debt, um, and like I said, I didn't have any models in my life that were lawyers to you know to help me understand how all that works. So I really uh, did everything I could to to be to be fanatically focused that first year and kind of do the opposite of what I did in undergraduate, which is to, you know, instead of scattering my energy around, I just really made it my my business to to do really well. And so to that end, I read um, I read a lot of books uh, on the outside about, you know, whether it was horn books for the subjects, whether it was books like Ward Farnsworth's The Legal Analyst, getting to maybe uh, other books on law school exams. Uh, I started doing practice exams a few weeks into the semester. Uh, and I was so stressed the first semester. And this is kind of, this is pretty out of character for me um, as far as to be, to, to approach academics with this kind of fanatical devotion. But, you know, I, I, that whole first semester, I, I, I had a really hard time sleeping. Uh, I, I would uh, try to help myself wind down by reading a textbook on classical Japanese. I've been studying Japanese since I was 13. Uh, and that was pretty effective. Um, but, but, you know, I just, I didn't sleep very much. Uh, and I worked really, really hard. Developed uh, arthritis in my fingers because of all the typing I was doing. Uh, and I, um, and at the end of it, I, I got, you know, I got great grades and was able to, um, uh, actually had the opportunity to come up to transfer to the University of Chicago Law School, go back to where I kind of began as an undergraduate. Uh, and, you know, my mentors I developed at that time uh, advised me to do that. I did. And that's kind of set the stage for everything that followed. I mean, I just have to say that is unbe an unbelievable story. I, I'm, 
just just from a personal perspective uh and i'm only 20 years old so you know don't don't take this too much but that just shows unbelievable character you seem like an unbelievably hardworking person you're dedicated i i, I mean the, the the chinese the the classical chinese textbook is throwing me for a whirl right now i can't <laughs> really get me right now so i'm like wow like yeah. that's just That is just insane. And taking practice exams, I mean, you, you, you clearly care about what you do and you care about the work that you put out in the world. And I hope to share that same attitude with everything that I do. And I always try to, but to the extent that you do, I, I want that. I, I want to feel that way. Um, and, 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 just, and you said something very interesting before and beforehand when you got to your 1L year. You talked about having sort of that scarcity mindset and that lights mm -hmm. off a bubble in my head. Um, you know, the, the growth mindset is something I definitely have grown to have in my life. Can you sort of talk about, you know, the, the difference between a scarcity mindset and a growth mindset and, and sort of how it, it, it mm -hmm. shaped you and changed your, you and your own life? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, you have to have a sense of, uh, basically personal security and financial security to some minimal degree in my experience to be able to focus, uh, especially on focus on abstract things and long-term goals. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so you, being terrified from the outset about getting a job and so on is, uh, is not the ideal way to approach law school. It just happens to be the way that, that I, where I was in my life, that's, that's how it was my first year until I realized, Oh, actually, uh, I'm actually very good at this, and uh, and I can, I I don't have to have the pedal to the floor at all times. I can kind of coast at a, at a high speed, um, not not coast, but you know, but work very hard without 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 you know um, not sleeping, for example. Um, as far as the growth mindset idea goes, that is uh, that's a, a different that that is an idea that I that I find very compelling. In fact, in my book, elegantly Legal writing, I think the first section of the first chapter. Uh, the first chapter is called Core Principles of Legal Writing. Section one is called Adopt a Growth Mindset. And what I talk about there is, is this idea of understanding that any skill set uh, is, is malleable. It's not a matter of fixed talent. And you, you know, if, you, if, if something is important to you as, a, as, as professional goals, as personal goals, you can, um, you know, you can take steps to cultivate cultivate those skills, practice them deliberately and, uh, and, and have a kind of a positive, a positive approach to it and a belief that you're not fixed in your station in life. You can get better. And I think that's, you know, I, I talk about it in the context of writing because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, writing being a matter of pure talent, um, you know, but it, but it really is a matter of techniques and craft to a pretty great degree. Uh, so, you, but you have to be able to see that and not, and, and in order to be able to understand that edits don't have to be threatening, they can just be treated as suggestions and opportunities to improve. Uh, and, and, and to be able to understand that even if, for example, you speak English as a second language, you know, maybe, maybe you're going to stumble on certain idioms once in a while, but that doesn't, that doesn't have to be an obstacle for you because all you, all, what you need to do, what you can do at all times is, is cultivate the core ingredients, uh, learn the techniques of craft and cultivate the core ingredients that go into writing well, such as by reading a lot of good prose, um, thinking about rhythm, thinking about storytelling, thinking about the reader's attention span, 
uh, and so on. So uh, I, I really believe that people of any language background can, you know, by adopting a growth mindset and then having, uh, and then and then having a sense of what to do next can can really improve. I mean, that's spectacular. Beautifully said, I have to say. I'm grinning ear to ear because I always love to talk about the growth and the scarcity scarcity mindset. It's something I came across when I was a freshman in college, and it just absolutely changed my life. It changed the way that I think. It changed the way that I see the world. It just it, it flipped everything on its head because, you know, it, it, it really made me a student for the rest of my life in, in terms of that I want to learn and you know be passionate about learning it's very satisfying to gain knowledge for, for myself and for everyone else as well because at the end of the day we're all human beings we all have you know very similar tendencies and that sort of thing i i don't mean to do this i have to talk about philosophy but i'm a philosophy major so i always do it i try to keep it within me i can't uh but someone like aristotle he talks about you know habit and how important that is and you know catharsis and being able to get through the bad stuff you know learn mm -hmm. and be able to make mistakes but at the end of the day when you get to that end point when you gain that knowledge when you know you study enough mm -hmm. to the point where you know it that is the most satisfaction that you could get in your life and i truly believe that so i just had to yeah. ask a question about the growth mindset because i love it so much mm -hmm. to the point where mm -hmm. former guest dale champion actually sent me the book thank him very much mm -hmm. uh thank you mm -hmm. thank daryl live on the podcast very mm -hmm. much for sending me that um <laughs> and i've been starting to read it just recently and it's just been absolutely amazing uh mm -hmm. but you go through law school and you start at your first job summer or not you're still in law school but you're summer associate mm -hmm. at irel mm -hmm. in manila and then you went on to be okay. a judicial clerk for the honorable david okay. m ebell and what i have to ask mm -hmm. from this is how exactly did you know what you wanted to do in the law in terms of, you know, the, the specific, uh, I guess, field that you're in? I know you're very much into procedure and you do a lot of litigation. So how did you figure out and come to the conclusion, this is what I want to do? Uh, through, um, I felt it out. I didn't try to specialize prematurely. I think that, uh, you know, I think when I, when I wrote my law school application essay, admission essay, it was about wanting to get into education law because I had done education before. But like that, that, that went out, out the window, you know, the moment I started, um, it, because you don't, it, I think, I think, um, uh, I think maybe at least I was when I was an undergraduate and, and in that early twenties sort of headspace and life experience stage, I was thinking a lot in terms of majors and specializations. And it seems like there's everybody specializing all around, but, um, but lawyers are fundamentally generalists. So I think, for example, uh, rankings of law schools that claim that it's it's ranking number one or five for business law is all nonsense. Um, it's there's it, it's 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 all about uh, you know you have to become to become a complete package as a lawyer. Uh, I think at a minimum you would need to uh, to be to be able to uh, to to handle basic litigation and and so much the better if you also have. Uh, have taken a class or two on drafting contracts, or you drafted some yourself in practice. So, and if you've seen contracts from the both sides, both how they can go wrong in litigation, plus you've drafted some, uh, I think that's that's how you can, uh, you know, really kind of become the complete package. But when I was in law school, I I I didn't pre I didn't specialize in anything. I kept open my options of possibly becoming a law professor. So I took a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of classes that were theoretical. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that called for seminar papers and uh, including some philosophy classes. I took, 
a class from Martha Nussbaum on roles, for example. Uh, I, my favorite class in law school was um, legal interpretation uh, with Judge Easterbrook of the Seventh Circuit. And he, at the beginning of the uh, of the semester, he gives you he gave us uh, you know a, like a ten page packet of recommended reading and which included things like Heidegger's Being in Time, in case you could squeeze that in, you know, to your law to your law semester. Um, you know, and that's and I just love I love stuff like that because I I really I I've always loved I loved I've always believed in self education, learning, curiosity. I think there's no excuse for ever being bored. Uh, if you uh, you know if you're curious, it will it just won't happen. Um, and uh, and so I, I I didn't I didn't I didn't run I didn't do anything to to prematurely specialize and I, I picked my 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 first uh, I picked my first one L summer job uh, to to be able to work as a research assistant for my mentor uh, Mark Weidemeyer at UNC Law studying sovereign debt contracts uh, and and he ended, I ended up having the opportunity to write a book chapter with him for the Oxford University Press so that was really great uh, the second semester uh, I ended up at IRL in Manila in Los Angeles. And at the time, uh, I'm from Michigan, so Los Angeles was not even on my mental map as a real place that that was that existed other than on a map. And so I, um, that was just kind of serendipitous in that um, it was an accident of uh, the the on-campus interview lotteries that I got a few uh, interviews with LA firms. I think because the ones that I was listing in Chicago and Washington D.C. were the highest highest demands in some ways for the University of Chicago law school students. Uh, so I ended up with a couple of interviews with LA firms, got a couple of callback interviews, loved the people I met at Irela Manella, and that's how I ended up going to to work for them. Yeah, that that that's amazing. I love the story of the uh, the ten page book recommendations. I wish one of my I wish yeah. one of my teachers gave me that. Uh, and crazy yeah. that Heidegger got in there. Being in time, what a read that is. Yeah. Um, he just keeps mm -hmm. talking about being in time, <laughs> and then it gets a little crazy after a while. Uh, but. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you talked about your mentor, Mark Widemer, and I have to ask, can, can you talk about the importance of mentorship and sort of networking and how that's been integral in your own professional life? Sure. And I, I mean, that seems to be, I, I have to give you major credit for the lengths to which you've gone in creating a podcast and an opportunity for uh, people uh, like me who are further along in, in the profession to to share how they got there and the diversity of experience, because um, you know, law is, it's so, it's such a wide field with so many different people. Everybody has different experiences depending on where they work. And it's also because of, you know, confidentiality and, uh, yeah, and, and, and all sorts of reasons, uh, things are often, it's also, it's often a little unclear what exactly does the different lawyers do all day. And I think that's true of a lot of professions, but maybe especially in law, it's hard to job shadow somebody and so on, because, you know, if you're dealing with confidential client work all day, um, you know, that's that you can't really just bring in the third person who doesn't have any reason to be there. So uh, I, I give you great kudos on that front. Um, and as far as uh, the, the the as far as mentoring goes, uh, yes, absolutely. Mark Weidemeyer was very was very important. Still still remains very important to me. Uh, same with um, uh, uh, Professor Elizabeth Gibson at at UNC. Uh, she ended up actually writing a blurb for my book. Um, she's she taught my civil procedure. Uh, course uh, my first year and uh, helped me develop that love of procedure I ended up forming um, and you know I I, I think that uh, having having the people who not just that you sort of exchange business cards with or connect with on LinkedIn and then you kind of forget about it but people but a, but a smaller group of people who you can 
go to and you've developed enough mutual trust that uh, that they can feel comfortable telling you in, in more blunt terms uh, about their experiences along the way and what they recommend and so on uh, is is uh, is extremely is priceless and it's it's like it, you get the benefit of uh, of people who have been down roads that can help you see see things that would otherwise be invisible to you based on your station in life and I, I really think uh, I I grew to appreciate that um, more and more over time. Uh, I think the younger the younger I was, the less I valued experience, uh, and uh, you know because well I didn't have it, so I had brain power <laughs> and writing ability, but I didn't have experience, so I didn't value it. Uh, but as time has gone on, I've realized um, that uh, that that you know the the importance of 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 falling down and getting up, the importance of uh, trying one thing and then pivoting to something adjacent because you know that's a better fit, um, and the importance of uh, um, you know of, of 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 the fact that we have blind spots in in areas we haven't experienced, we don't even know what what to look for. Uh, and a lot of lawyers uh, that I've talked to that I talk to and I and I see posting you know on communities that I'm part of on LinkedIn. Uh, talk about reps or building calluses. And I think that's so important. You know, I, I really think that when you, you know, when you start off as a lawyer or really in any activity, but, but in the context of law in particular, um, you've never done, you've never written a discovery request. You've never written a motion to compel. You've never written an opposition brief. You've never calculated complicated deadline based on court rules and court dates and, and so on. And, um, you know, maybe you've never been overwhelmed and had to calendar things uh, very stringently, uh, so that you don't miss any deadlines that are high stakes. There's all these things that, you know, that are, um, that are new and you don't even know that they, that, that, that they're, that they're experienced, unless you talk to people that are, that have gone through them and kind of, and solicit, you know, some, some advice and, and read and study and pay attention to gaps in your knowledge. Um, it can all feel kind of overwhelming, but again, going back to the growth mindset, when you drafted that first motion to compel, uh, writing the second one is twice as easy, and and then it you know it kind of works as a power law from there, and and you you end up being able to write them in your sleep before too long, and that's kind of how it goes with everything. Yeah, I mean, I heard you say reps. I heard you say calluses. I have to talk about the gym now. I'm so sorry. I love sure. the gym. I go to the gym every day. It's an amazing thing. I always, I always say when I, you know, I think it was five years ago now when I first went to the gym with my brother for the first time. It was I don't want to say the turning point in my life at all because I feel like there's going to be a bigger turning point eventually. But I think it's one of those things that I always remember as you know being you know the start of the growth mindset really. Uh, you know, really started in the gym for me, realizing that you know if I lift this weight for a certain amount of reps and then I come in and do a, a you know a bigger weight and get those same reps my muscles are going to grow and it's something as simple as that right I kind of realize like oh my gosh right. this is totally just this is what life is all about <laughs> you know right. uh, in right. terms of learning in terms of reading just you know these kinds of things compound. Uh, and I heard you say mm -hmm. power law before. Um, and, and that's something mm -hmm. that, you know, all the entrepreneurs I've ever read about, they talk about that a lot. Mm -hmm. that you, if you do something every day, I know um, this, uh, the one guy, uh, I think his blog is uh, Wait But Why. I think it's Tim Urban. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he always what? talks, he always talks about like, he has like the big charts of like, you know, if you do something every single day, it will be like a certain amount of years. Like if you read 30 minutes a day, you'll read like 20,000 books by the end of your life, something crazy. Like right. but those little things, you know, you don't really think about it in terms of, oh, I'm going to read 20,000 books by the end of my life. It's just like, oh, I'm just reading the book right now. Uh, so something like yeah. that was, you know, just absolutely blows my mind every single time I see it. But also, you know, in, implementing in my own life, and clearly, you have very much implemented in your in your life wholeheartedly with all the books behind you. I can't stop talking about it. But I think as well, like even something as small as building a calendar every day, you know, starting this podcast, you know, with school and everything else that I in the in the organizations I'm in, that was something I had to do in my life. Yeah. I never made a calendar mm-hmm. in my life, and I'm like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. So I, I literally like right. months ago, I downloaded a Google calendar for the first time. I'm like, I got to start putting stuff in, mm-hmm. stuff in. Like, you know, yeah. I, I saw like some scientific study. They said you can only have like seven to eight things in your head at once. So it's like, I can't remember That's all right. the homework. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. But going further in your career, you were an associate attorney at Wilmer Hale for a year. Then you went to Houston mm-hmm. Hennigan. Can you talk about, talk mm-hmm. about those experiences? Did you love them? Did you hate yeah. them? How was it? Well, and, and, and in there, I uh, in, in between, I, I founded Word Brewery and, and it, it got, uh, got a got a sponsorship from a tech company to help me help me do that um, because it was uh, quite expensive to host. Uh, so, but I, I, I got to build a team of people around uh, freelance developers around the world to actually build the software for me. Um, and, you know, it, it, you got a fair number of users. The, the hosting costs were really astronomical. I didn't really see them until the, the, the funding ran out. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but there, 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 was, there was that experience in there as well. And um, I would say that uh, I, I gained a lot from all the different firms, from, from the firms I've worked at um, and, and from every experience. Uh, for, for me, the, 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 the bigger firms were, um, were not my, didn't turn out to be my ideal way to practice law for a number of reasons. Um, first, you know, when you're on a very, very big case in a very, very big law firm, uh, it's, it's kind of the problem of seeing the whole elephant. You just, especially if you're kind of come, it feels like you're kind of coming in in the middle of a conversation that this litigation has gone on for years. Uh, and you're one of 30 attorneys, uh, working on it just at your firm alone. Um, you know, maybe there's, you know, in, 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 in one case that I was put on, there were, there was a multi-tiered national class action and there were, uh, you know, similar, there were kind of ongoing work happening in 80 countries. It was crazy. So, and I, I just, every, every minute of the day, I would just be, get email after email after email about this case, not directed to me, but because I was on the list and I had no idea the relevance of any of them or how to contribute and <laughs> my skills. And so it was, that was, a, that was, a, uh, that was hard. It was quite difficult because it was very different from the experience of clerking where I had more time as an appellate clerk to uh, be able to, um, you know, to, to to sit with the briefs, to do the research, to get a form and understanding of the area of law. And then I had a, a you know, pretty uh, discreet and fun task of developing uh, bench memos to, uh, to, to tell the judge about the different arguments and then, and then help them uh, understand, uh, understand the different issues and how they interrelate. Uh, and then make recommendations about how to decide the case and then, you know, have ongoing dialogue with the court about that. And that uh, that was a very different experience than than, than practicing uh, litigation at a big firm. Um, I don't think my experience uh, at, at, at the bigger firms is entirely representative. I, I think that I think that um, 
you know, for the, the, the huge cases is, is sort of one genre of tricky thing that you can face as a young associate. Um, the, the, the just kind of sense of floundering, uh, I think is fairly common, um, you know, and, but it's, it's different for everybody. And it's different for everybody. It's different for every firm. I love the people I worked with and I learned a lot every day, uh, it, you know, and it just, it, it's, it's, it's a, it was, it's a struggle in a way that, uh, that, that, you know, that uh, having more, more time to think about things, more time to analyze them, which is what I've been doing in the past. Uh, it was a very different feel feeling. So it took me a while to find my footing as a litigator. Uh, and what I found uh, eventually was that the way that I, I actually love litigation and the way I, um, you know, that I've come around to loving litigation and, and, and practicing law in general is, uh, has been, has been working with my partner, John Rushing and co-founding the firm with him back in 2020. And uh, he's a, he's an experienced trial lawyer who's just phenomenal in front of a jury. He's phenomenal at client, client contact, client management, um, at, at networking, uh, at negotiation. He's just very extroverted. And, and we just complement each other very well because I'm more of a, an introvert who likes to write. I like doing oral arguments too. I like doing depositions. But but for him, that's that's just where he absolutely thrives. And so we have a very complementary skill set. And when we started the firm, uh, the that the, having the responsibility of carrying matters from start to finish, big or small, uh, is a very different feeling than what I had experienced in a larger firm where I was uh, part of a huge team. And I, I also was important for me, it turned out, even though I wouldn't have known it at the time at first, that um, being at the top of the hierarchy was important for me because I had, you know, I just, I just wrote a book about legal writing, you know, it's, and it's gotten a lot of positive buzz from people all, all over the profession. Uh, and I know a lot more about legal writing than I did back when I was a young associate. But even then, it, you know, I had done a lot of a lot of writing and a lot of thinking about writing, and I had strong strong beliefs about how it should be done. And so to be to have you know to to have things happen like I had like when you know I was supposed to kind of implement somebody else's ideas, which were kind of nebulously formed because sometimes the ideas only come out in the writing, uh, and then when you produce the writing, well, that's not what I had in mind, right? Or you might have another experience where you write something that, that you think is the best argument um, and then it's just completely, completely rewritten by, by five layers of hierarchy above you. You know, these are experiences that I think are completely normal in big firms and they're not exactly hardships or anything. You know, you're, you're, you're getting paid well, you're learning a lot, et cetera. But it, it wasn't, it, I, I didn't love that in the same way that I love uh, having ownership over my, my, my litigation practice and the ability to, uh, to you know, have have things done the way that I like them done, and the ability to know my clients and know how important the litigations we handle are in their lives, and why it matters for me to uh, sometimes stay up all night, for example, to finish a motion, in what, because I have a very uh, now a much more salient understanding of the state. So, from that, I just have to say first. I think it's an important point that you brought up, having control over your cases and, and being able to sort of produce the work that you want to produce and, and you know, be able to see the outcomes that you know will be produced. Uh, you know, in the big firms, it's, you don't have the as much autonomy over what you could really do. But I think as well, you brought up the important point is, you know, having that sort of personable relationship with your clients. And it goes back to the law being, as I found it out, a, a very human thing. There's a big human aspect to the law that I 
that I think a lot of the times, well, I've never been to law school, but from what I've heard, it kind of gets thrown out the window. You kind of forget about it because you get into the weeds of the cases, you get into the weeds of the case books, you, you get into reading rules and the statutes and the precedents and, right. and you forget that, you know, there's people out there that you're representing. And I think it's a really important yeah. point because it, it, it goes back, you know, you got to have good soft, uh, you know, soft skills, be able to speak to people, be able yeah. to talk to people. Uh, and, and I think that was just a very important point. But I have a crazy yeah. two part question here because I need to know. Sure. So you yeah. obviously started your own firm, Rushing and McCarl, but you also mm -hmm. founded Word Brewery. So can you talk mm -hmm. about the, I guess, the similarities and differences between starting a tech software company startup and starting a law mm -hmm. firm and maybe the difficulties that came from it because I'm super duper interested. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, you know, because when you, when, with Word Brewery, with a lot of, uh, I, you know, obviously, as you know, most startups uh, quote unquote fail one way or the other, right? And most startups don't have, are not, don't ever receive funding or don't have exits or don't, or don't acquire the user base they want whatever, whatever the reason is, this is just the normal thing. It's easy to, it's, but it's easy to say in the abstract, it's another thing to be the, be the, the entrepreneur who's, who is among the 90% of, you know, in, uh, in the statistics, uh, who, who at the end of it is not, is not Mark Zuckerberg, but is shutting it down and feeling bad about it. And, um, but, but, you know, it's hard to see in the moment there, uh, you know, the, when you have to let something like that in your life go and pivot, uh, that it has, you know, that it was worth it anyway. And, but it, but it hundred percent was worth it anyway, because of what I learned in so many different ways, including about managing a team and managing a large project. Uh, and so that's not something that I would have, uh, uh, you know, I, all the, all the work I did when I was building word brewery, as far as studying how people learn and thinking about, you know, things like user experience design, user interface design, gamification, um, you know, how to, how to encourage people that are busy and language isn't the one, number one thing they do, how to use, how, how to encourage them to nevertheless, you know, read a couple sentences from the, the Italian newspapers, you know, every day to build a vocabulary. Um, all that stuff turned out to, uh, to be, to be valuable one way or the other. And, and, and a lot of it informed my things that I write in my book quite directly, even if I don't, don't mention it explicitly, but a lot of what I talk about with respect to, um, uh, to, to, you know, to, to earning people's attention and holding it uh, and being useful is stuff that I learned through that experience. And then you asked about the law firm side of it. And so that there, I, I was, I, when I, when I built Word Brewery, I did it with the help of uh, primarily a few uh, programmers in Ukraine, but, but at different times there were, you know, there were up to 10 people around the world uh, helping me. So there was somebody, somebody working out at 24 hours a day, one way, one place or another. Uh, and I've just managed them all through Slack and, you know, use project management system to, uh, you know, to assign tasks and track them. And that's exactly what I do now. So, you know, we have, uh, we have a dispersed team where we work, a prime, we work uh, mainly remotely uh, and, uh, and we communicate uh, mainly on Slack. And, uh, and that is, we also do Zooms all day. We, we see each other in person a couple times a week, but, you know, but that, that whole, that whole way of doing business as a law firm, I think is, is quite unusual for, for people still. Uh, and for me, I was prepared to implement those systems and knew it could be done and had a set, had a vision of what it would look like because I had done it uh, with, with, with language learning startup. So it turned out to be plant a seed for useful, you know, uh, useful skill set later that I would never really guess because, you know, they, you mentioned just starting to use a calendar. 
I probably didn't use one very effectively when I was uh, 20 either. Um, you know, but uh, but running an organization or running a big project, uh, not to mention your own life uh, when and things that you deal with uh, as an adult are um, uh, it, it's, it's tricky. It's all tricky. It's all a set of skills that has to be learned and. Uh, everything you do in life and every experience you have, you can build one skill or the other. If that's what you set out to do. Yeah, I think I think that's a great story to tell, and and I think as well, I have I have a little uh, you know relatability to to your experience at doing this. Actually, well, it wasn't me; it was my brother. Uh, he and his uh, business partner had co-founded a startup, and you know it's it's going pretty well, but sort of in that same situation, the sort of mm-hmm. you know floating in space, but. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, just like you said, I wouldn't label it as a failure. They've learned tremendous things just like yourself. And I think, you know, throughout anything you ever do or anyone does in their life, even in the failures, there's still so much to learn. You can always win, essentially. There's always a chance to be able to win something, even, even if, you know, maybe you really do lose, but uh, at, at the end of the day, I think it's great to explain that experience. And, and I know they actually had a couple of people around the world as well. They had a couple of people in Pakistan uh, who were helping mm-hmm. them doing some uh, web design and some visual stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think going back to what you co- sort of learned with Ward Brewery, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the way people act and the way people function mm-hmm. and, you know, the way they're mm-hmm. drawn to things, sort of that gamification mm-hmm. I, I know someone who talks about that a lot is uh, Mark Andreessen. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he talks about yes. systems and, and, you know, how they're built and, you know, incentives. And when you incentivize this sort of thing, you know, you get the outcome from that. So that made me think of that. Right. And I love him so much. He's one mm-hmm. of my favorites. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But you're also... You're also an adjunct professor at Loyola Law School, and you also mm-hmm. you were a Pulse Fellow in AI Law mm-hmm. and Policy at the University of California School of Law. Now, I have to ask, I'm very mm-hmm. much into AI. I've, I've been using mm-hmm. ChatGPT since freshman year of college. Uh, I, I like it. I like it a lot. I don't know mm-hmm. how you feel about it. Um, but I have to ask, mm-hmm. in what ways have you, if you have, if ever, have you integrated AI into what you do on a daily basis or even for your, uh, you know, law firm? Sure. Um, I do subscribe to, to uh, G- ChatGPT Plus and I've experimented with some others, haven't gotten into any, any others uh, as, regular, as a regular user. Um, I don't use GP- ChatGPT for, for the law practice, but I do use it for various little side projects or hobbies, uh, you know, things like um i i've been i've been reading about um uh how people learn to read because i have a daughter who's seven months old and so i've been you know trying to figure out ways to kind of help her get a head start and and develop a, the the love of language that i have uh if, if she's so inclined so you know things like asking uh, chat gpt to uh to come up with like a list of vocabulary words or toddlers break them down by their phonemes things like that, you know, just, just kind of having fun with that. Um, uh, my wife uh, picked out uh, uh, paint colors for the nursery by asking, by, by, by providing one uh, C- CSS code as the, as the starting color. Uh, and then, uh, and then having it come up with uh, a sort of a whole palette. Uh, and that was even before it could generate images. That was, that was just, it, it, it provided the, C- the CSS codes and you could plug them in and say, yeah, that does actually work. Um, you know, so the, the, and also um, with respect to, 
uh, following up on, on the book elegantly writing again, that no AI was used in making that, of course, but I would say that, um, I've, I've experimented with, uh, you know, how could I possibly use this to accelerate the process of creating an online course? If I decide to do that, I haven't, I haven't done that or even decided to do it yet, but I've, but I've kind of done some proof of concept things, for example, of, um, you know, I've, I've thought of this idea of teaching about sentence structures and, and helping people practice different sentence structures, because even though that's not specific to legal writing, uh, I find that uh, a lot of people are, are a little stuck in terms of their, they just don't use certain punctuation that, that, that has a lot of uses that's val that are valuable, or, and they, maybe they, they, they stick to kind of simple sentence structures. And so I've thought about ways to kind of teach people, um, give people experience, you know, reps again of, of, of writing in different ways. So, you know, so I, just for fun, had ChatGPT, uh, you know, generate exercises that do that. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that it's made, that none of that is stuff that's particularly practical, but uh, in terms of law practice itself, uh, I, I've tried, I've used um, case text. Uh, case text is, I've liked for a very long time, including uh, bef and, uh, before they developed their most recent kind of iteration of, of AI work. But uh, generating summaries of documents can be very helpful because you don't, um, you, you're never going to trust the summary if you're a good lawyer, but you, but it can tell you where, where you're likely to find something in the document and you can give your general, general picture of whether the document's likely to be helpful for you. So, you know, running, doing a bunch of case summaries is very helpful. I think, um, I think AI software that can be used to, um, to, to find cases through natural language is, it makes a big difference. I wrote a large article about that and some other issues on AI a couple of years ago, uh, but the idea of treating cases as points in hyperdimensional space, you know, points on a graph, essentially, so you can find analogous cases, not by the old-fashioned way of using, um, you know, Boolean search queries of this and that or that, but rather uh, simply talking about the case in natural language and then having the program turn that into a string of numbers called the vector, uh, a feature vector, and then having it find cases that are mapped in a similar place on the coordinate plane. I find that to be incredibly powerful and interesting idea. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's extremely effective. And I think case tax has done a good job with it. That's why they were, the founders were able to uh, sell it to, to West for a lot of money. Well, that's great to hear. And hopefully people will take those recommendations and use them for any of their uh, law school or, or legal needs, as, as I would say. But let's talk about the new book, Elegant Legal Writing. This is your time. The shameless plug is here. Plug it up. <laughs> Sure. Well, uh, elegant legal writing is about how to write judges, how to write briefs that judges find easy to read and want to read and enjoy reading. Uh, it, it's it's fundamentally the basic premise is that when you're writing for people who are reading your work out of duty, uh, rather uh, obligation to do a job and not because they choose to, uh, then that's a different set of of constraints that you have to keep in mind as a writer than when you're doing creative writing. Uh, you know, which I, which I, I, I do, I've done creative writing too, uh, taking creative writing classes. Uh, I think it's extremely valuable for even for legal writing, but the fundamental mindset of, um, are you writing for self-expression? Are you writing for, for art, for art's sake? That is different than, than, than writing for litigation. Uh, litigation writing is, can learn from all the craft techniques that people have developed in, in fiction and nonfiction. Uh, and, but but the fundamental purpose of a, of a, of a lawsuit brief uh, is to is to teach the court the analytical moves that they need that the court will need 
to reach a decision in your client's favor. So you teach the facts and those analytic moves and you show the reasoning process in a way that aligns with the judge's background and knowledge and understanding of the law. And, and through that, you persuade the court to, uh, to rule in your favor if all goes well. But you know, a lot of briefs in my mind don't actually get very far off the ground on that front because in order for the court to be persuaded, they have to understand what you're saying. And in order to understand what you're saying, they need to read the brief. <laughs> and I, I sometimes trial court uh, judges in particular have just truly incredible dockets. I, I once had a state court judge tell me that she had over 1,200 active cases at once and her docket. And I just can't even fathom that. But I do know this, that that, that there's no way that, that that judge is able to read every brief, that every single document that is on her desk because no human being has that kind of time. So the amount of time you have to first can, uh, persuade through the document design itself and how quickly you get to the point and how quickly you should kind of kind of give an overview of what you're doing. Um, you kind of have to in initially earn the judge's attention, just like I had to do back when I was teaching ninth graders. You have to first earn the judge's attention and make it clear that that you're going to be helpful and that you the brief you're 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 providing them is is going to be an effective roadmap for the ruling that you want them to reach. So uh, it's so that's what the brief is. is then the the book itself, with that kind of mindset or philosophy underlying it, uh, are, shows through practical examples, uh, techniques that can be used to make your briefs more more readable, easier to read, clearer, uh, and more likely to be read because they're also aesthetically pleasing. So if you are listening to this podcast right now, you are required to go get Ryan McCarl's book, Elegant Legal Writing. It's it's out there. Go find it. Now you have to buy it. I'm just saying, you know, it's the price you, it's the price you pay to listen to this podcast. Uh, but I have my last three questions here but actually i'm gonna add it i'm gonna add another one now i usually do only last three questions i have to add another one because you got so many books sure. behind you. can can we have ryan mccarl's official book recommendations on live on lawyers in the making podcast it doesn't have to be about law it could be about anything just your favorite books ever i need to hear them so i can write them down and buy them when i'm done with this podcast yeah. Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, I, I'm literally sure my favorite book is East of Eden by uh, John Steinbeck. Uh, Steinbeck. Uh, that's, um, that, that, that's, that's my favorite one as far as literature goes. Uh, I'll, I'll, I, there were others that I liked a lot back in college, like War and Peace, but I haven't, I don't, I don't, I don't say it's my favorite book anymore because I read it so long ago that I don't have a clear view of it anymore <laughs> of what it, of what it is. I have to go back to it. Um, and then in terms of nonfiction work, uh, I, I, there's a lot, there's a lot very useful stuff out there, uh, very interesting stuff out there that have, you know, kind of shaped my mind a little bit. Um, and I, I think one that comes to mind immediately is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And uh, that he's a behavioral, econo uh, he does behavioral economics, uh, which has legal ramifications too. Uh, and, but it's about cognitive biases. It's about uh, how the way the brain works um, and the way it tries to conserve its own energy and attention uh, influence um, influence the way we process information and how we go about our lives and and can and can lead to uh, is, is often essential because you can't do rigorous thinking about everything you have to sometimes make decisions very fast uh, but but you know but it can also lead to, to biases and blind spots um, I found that whole literature that it, and and if, and to be fascinating and i found that book in particular to be the best overview of it i've seen um that's uh you know that I, I i could probably think of a million more but those are the first two to come to mind 
Well, that's wonderful. They will be in my Amazon card in about 30 minutes. Don't you worry. Um, but now, now we're down to the real last three, just because, you know, you get so many books. Uh, but so first question is, what are the sorts of things that you consume, not food, uh, consume on a daily basis, whether that be social media, you know, Instagram, Twitter, every, you know, articles, you know, blogs, whatever it may be. If you got some like favorite people you read every day, you keep track of maybe some of that, you know, what's crossing the transom of Ryan's mind on a daily basis? So I would say that um, the first the first caveat is is that I, I am a big believer in, in the, the concept of deep work uh, as, as promoted by Cal Newport. Uh, I think his book is very good. It's the best self-help book I've ever read. Um, another good one, by the way, is uh, Getting Things Done by David Allen when you're trying to uh, come up with productivity systems. Uh, but uh, but the, the concept of deep work uh, and, uh, you know, there's also a book called The Shallows that I read long ago. I'm, I'm very concerned as an educator and as a, new, as a new parent and as a person who wants to use my life well about digital distraction. Uh, and, you know, in, and I'm, I'm not anti-tech, uh, you know, I studied AI, I run a virtual law firm with, with John Rushing, uh, <laughs> I know how to program in Python, I built a software startup. So, but, but still, I, um, and, I, and I've been keeping, I actually started keeping blogs when I was in high school. Uh, so, you know, that was big back in like 2002 when I had my first blog. And so I, uh, but I've learned I feel like I, I, I have a, got a little bit lucky uh, because uh, to, to sort of uh, be just behind the, the, the age that you're in where, you know, where, where you've grown up with smartphones being everywhere already, internet being everywhere already, social media being everywhere. And I was able to first uh, fall in love with books and writing and um, things like that. And, and, and without having those distractions there until, until really I got into high school. Um, and I believe that that I, even the word content makes me a little bit uncomfortable because it has to me it has a connotation of being uh, sort of churned out, and I don't think AI has done anybody any favors in this regard. Um, and I, I, you know, especially having written the book now and put it through, you know, I think total of four years of writing it and revising it, just re- rewrote the entire book uh, between when it was, the manuscript was accepted and then when I sent it off uh, the second time endless revision the amount of effort and and deep thought and thinking that goes into publishing a book is as order of magnitude different than what it takes to to write blog posts um you know and i do both and so but what i would say is that uh what that means is that when you think about input read books (laughs) whether it's audiobooks or whether it's um you know whether it's actual uh you know physical books doesn't matter it reading books that's the best input you can give yourself um that said uh to 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 give a couple more as far as on the other side as far as the digital you know landscape goes uh i have my own blog legalwriting.com uh i've recently uh, as part of trying to promote the book um but it's but it's kind of grown beyond that i started using linkedin and uh, found a kind of a community of lawyers who care about legal writing language and who share tips and that's been really useful uh especially because twitter uh has uh, changed uh obviously and is no longer uh, I, I, my, the people that I, that I are in my community are really not there very much anymore. So it's a little fragmented and I've been pleasantly surprised to see LinkedIn, uh, grow from, you know, what was initially really just shameless self-promotion and online business card back when it first came out, in my opinion, that was my impression to now it seems to have thriving communities of uh, professionals who are, who are willing to help each other out and share good content. 
uh, and the self-promotion is more of a byproduct uh, when, when you follow the right people. So I, I think LinkedIn is good. As far as what to read, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lifelong fan of Tyler Cohen and, and his blog, Marginal Revolution, which I think I've been reading since high school. Um, and he's a polymath. He's an economist at George Mason University, uh, but, but, he writes, but he also just reads, uh, reads about everything and reads very fast and has a lot of interesting things to talk about. Um, uh, Eugene Balak, a, a law professor at UCLA, um, former colleague of mine, he actually wrote a blurb for my, for, for my book. Uh, his book, his blog, The, the Vala Conspiracy, has been around since I was in high school, and that was my first exposure to law. Uh, and so it was, pretty, it was kind of wild to be briefly on the faculty with him at UCLA. Um, and uh, also there's a, uh, um, there's a blog called The Marginalian, former, formerly called Brain Pickings. Uh, and, uh, and, and the, that's really about just little tastes of culture of, of, of uh, things like, um, you know, what's, what's, what's Steinbeck, uh, what, uh, what John Steinbeck wrote about in his letters, you know, that, that teaches us something about his creativity process. So it's almost like, it's almost like it, it, it dovetails with all the different productivity and self-help type of, um, uh, you know, content that's out there, but it, but it, but it goes beyond what was written in the last 20 years. And it goes in places you wouldn't expect that to be found, like musings on creativity in, in uh, centuries old letters by great writers, things like that. So that's what I would suggest as far as, um, as, as good things to, to read. Uh, and I'll just say one more in terms of the law. Uh, I listened, I, I, when I was in high school, again, I, um, I actually listened to uh, Supreme Court oral arguments on Oyez. And, uh, and there's a, in listening to, listening to great cases, uh, to interesting, cases that interest you, famous cases, cases in the news that, that, that attract your attention and listening to the advocacy before the Supreme Court is a great way to uh, quickly get exposed to a lot of legal thinking and, um, and, and really just to hear some advocacy as art because to be able to, uh, to regularly argue before the Supreme Court, you have, you have to be very, very good. I'd have to say, I used to call that a weird question. You've absolutely hit it out of the park. Oh, that was amazing. Uh, oh, all the recommendations. We got the second uh, Cal Newport deep work on, on the Lawyers in the Making podcast. Second time was recommended. First time was Ernie Sevenson. Uh, he he dropped that. So that was the first time I heard about him. But this is the second time now. I know him pretty well. I've listened to his podcast before a couple of times. I haven't got to his book, though. going to do that soon. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. Second question here, you're always working, you got your law firm, you're doing all this fun stuff, but what does an ideal Friday night or Sunday morning look for Ryan? Um, before last June, it, it was different than what it is now because my when my daughter was born uh, last June, it changed uh, the way I want to spend my leisure time in a way that I didn't, uh, didn't, didn't predict, um, didn't really understand till, till she was born. But... Um, you know, I think a, a group outing to happy hour, uh, sometimes we'll, the, the three of us, my wife, my daughter, and myself, will go out to something called toddler happy hour nearby and we'll meet uh, two, two friends of mine who actually went to University of Chicago Law School and are now, are now lawyers here in town and they'll bring their two babies. And we, so we have, a, and it's just a bunch of you know, people in there ranging from their 20s to their 40s or, uh, with, with, with children in tow and, you know, you can have a beer and you can, and, and uh, you can, you know, uh, hang out with the kids as well. That's nice. Um, you know, and then, uh, and then when I have, I try to make time to read to, to my daughter every day, you know, read her 
spend at least like an hour reading with her and hanging out with her. Uh, and then when she's sleeping, I try to write. So I've, you know, I, I, I'm writing, uh, writing new blog posts for my writing blog, uh, starting to, to make notes for, for the next book. Um, and reading and writing, uh, is, it's hard to make time for, you have to turn off everything to do it, uh, and to do it well. Uh, you say their whole brain activities uh, in order for them to be enjoyable and, and fruitful. Uh, and so trying to make sure I carve out time to you know leave the iPad in the other room and bring a book into the other room and just sit there with it and, and not move until I've spent a half hour reading it, it makes, makes me feel so much better about my day and my week. Absolutely. So last question here, Ryan, I do this at the end of every, every episode. What are your words of wisdom for the aspiring law students, the current law students, and the current legal professionals out there in the world? I would, I would, oh man, I, I, I'd say that first, um, make, uh, see practicing law as a privilege and always think about the human dramas, you know, in terms of litigation, uh, especially think about the human drama at the core of it, which you referred to earlier. And remember that, um, that, you know, to you, it may be an overfull task list to you. It may be, uh, hours, uh, you know, that are going to interfere with your, you know, your, your plans, um, to, uh, you know, to you, it's, it's related to your livelihood and your paycheck, but, but these, some of these cases, a lot of cases that I worked on are really, truly make or break for people and for companies. And, you know, when I say for companies, companies have human beings that own and run them. So there's a human, you know, people don't, most people don't just kind of, um, you know, file lawsuits for no reason, as is sometimes portrayed in, in, the, in the world, they usually have some sort of, um, you know, serious injury or ser- a serious good faith dispute. And a lot hinges on how well their lawyer does. And so what I always recommend, there's a book uh, for, along with the others I recommended uh, for, for, for pre-law students, I mentioned, I think my book is, is effective uh, for a lot of reasons, um, Elegant Legal Writing. I think Ward Farnsworth's book on um, the legal analyst is good for uh, more abstract legal thinking, which is crucial. Uh, getting to maybe uh, is great for for law exams. Uh, uh, but I would also say that there's a book called uh, something like A Thousand Days to the Bar, but the Practice of Law Starts Now uh, that I read when I was a 1L. And I found that very useful for, for my mindset. It's really to think about um, the difference between you you know, really trying to learn like how some principles of procedure uh, and evidence law, as opposed to just kind of, you know, just kind of getting a superficial understanding um, will over time just help those little decisions like that that you make really starting in law school onward can, can just like with, you mentioned Aristotle, it's like being in the habit of depth, being in the habit of, of um, self-improvement and, uh, and just just seeing yourself as you've, you're entering a profession where it's a privilege to be able to help your, take off of your client's shoulders these burdensome disputes, uh, and you want to go kill it for them. You know, it's not just a job; it's it, it's a calling, and it's a privilege to be able to do it. Uh, we don't know we don't know how to do math or science, so you know I'm I'm, not, I'm I'm useless with my hands. So therefore, this is my opportunity to participate in the world and actually be useful. Um, and it's a privilege and I want to be really, really good at it. And I've had that mindset uh, and that, that, that focus on law really since, um, since I started law school. And, and that, that level of investment in my own, my own legal mind and my legal skill set over time has made it fun for me to practice law 
and enjoy my work. It's not, it's, so it's no longer a strain. It's stressful, but it's worth it. Well, Ryan, that's spectacularly said. But that's the podcast. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. And for everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And I will see you in the next one.